They're good. All right. I don't know. You don't know. <laughs> His wife hadn't told him yet. He's so sweet. Yeah, she's fixing to though. <laughs> she said you're fine. You're gonna say you're fine. Yes, <laughs> Yeah. All right. We'll do some quick popcorn prayer requests. Uh, if you got one, raise your hand. Right. What you got right quick? Just a general prayer for upward. General prayer for upward? Anybody else got anything? Uh, my cousin Jim, thank you for everybody that's praying. Uh, right now it's in and out of the hospital. He's on a super antibiotic. Um, it is cancerous. We're just waiting to see whether it's stage three or four. Uh, I was just telling Larry this is the exact same way my grandfather died, uh, but Jim's about 10 years younger than what my grandfather was. So, uh, but right now the family's in good spirits. They've got a ton of folks praying for them, so we're interceding at the throne of God. Yes, sir. Hi. Mediation for Bill's daughter tomorrow. Anything else? Everybody else is doing good, right? No, no. no, Katie said no. We have learned in the college and careers class never say, I'm doing good. No. <laughs> the, the, the demons, the, the thrones and principalities that roam about take it as a challenge. <laughs> you are braver than I. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Okay. We don't know. They haven't really given us a determination. Really, I'm praying more for my dad and his patients. And us being so far away, it's hard to get back and forth to help them. And just prayer and that everything will just come into place so we can. Uh, I understand. We watch. Better support system for him. Yeah. We watched my dad die over the course of 15 years with Alzheimer's. So. Um, yeah. well, I hope it's not that. I, I hope so. We too. haven't got that determination. Anything else? All right, Katie's like, I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it, I'm not saying it. If somebody will open it, I'll close it out, and then we'll dive back into our introduction on Revelation tonight. Um, ladies, you are available to pray too. The Bible gives full <laughs> credence to women praying. So if you feel the need to pray, you are more than welcome to pray. God, we praise you for this time and we praise you for the study that David's put in. Father, seeking your will and seeking your word and, and Father, now blessing us with the understanding that you've given him. Dear Father, give us ears to hear. Uh, Father, help us to glean from, from the knowledge that you have fed us with. Dear Lord, for the prayer requests that are lifted up for Kevin, for, for the mediation for Mark, and Father, for David's uh, uncle, I believe. Uh, dear Lord, for uh, for a path for his healing, dear Lord, for your blessings there. Father, open our ears, help us to fellowship with you here this time, dear Father, in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Father God, we do thank you for the freedom, Father, for the opportunity, <clears throat> Father, for the joy of gathering in your name, studying your word, fellowshipping with one another. Father, as iron sharpens iron, as you tell us. Father, we want to know more about you. 
Lord, that we know you better. Father, that we understand you better, that we praise you better. Father, that we be more like you day in and day out. Father, guide our conversation tonight. Guide our study. Uh, Lord, you give a blessing in Revelation to those that would read it and to those that hear it. And so, Father, we ask that you honor that tonight. Father, that you, that you, that you deliver a better sermon than I am prepared to give. Father, that you teach a better lesson than I'm prepared to teach. Lord, I'm just an old clay pot unto dishonor. Father, you are the golden vessel. You pour forth water that we, that we never thirst when we drink. Father, you are the bread that when we consume, we never hunger again. Father, we thank you for sustaining us. Father, for refreshing us. Father, be in our midst tonight. Father, may it be joyful. May it be uplifting. Father, may it be edifying to the body. Father, we study revelation that it motivate us to tell others about you. Father, it's fun to know the future. It's helpful at times. But Lord, it should motivate us knowing what kind of a day of judgment is coming. Father, we give this time to you. Father, we thank you. Father, we praise you. We ask it all in the pure and holy name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, you should have a packet. If you do not, raise your hand, and my lovely assistant will be more than happy to give you one. But I think everybody has been well papered at this point. All right, last week we talked about the four views. And so let's fill out a little bit of vocabulary tonight. What were the four views of Revelation? What was the first one we talked about? Idealist. Idealist. What do the idealists believe? That it's all allegory. That it's all allegory. That, it, that everything in it applies to every generation and every circumstance. And that we're just looking at Revelation as, well, that's just how life is. So that's the way the idealist views it. How does the, what's the next view? The Praetorist. How does the Praetorist view it? Not his future, but happened in 70 A.D. <laughs> everything was consummated by 70 A.D. That everything is in the past. That we are technically living in the millennial kingdom. That the millennium isn't necessary a defined amount of time. And that the church age is just the millennium that has happened. And that by gosh, by golly, we're all going to get into politics. And the world's going to come back to Jesus. And that's just the way it's going to be. What's the next view? Historical. historical view. What does the historical individual do? What was that? Some of it's happened, but some hasn't yet. Some has happened, some hasn't. More specifically, what do they do? What do they do with current events? They try to, we're trying to fit it into. They, we, we, we're taking the scripture, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to cram what's happening in society right now into it. And what, what, what was the big problem we said with this view? Reading too much in the scripture? Reading too much in the scripture at times. Yes, sometimes it's an allegory and we have to accept it as an allegory. Sometimes it's just case hardened fact and we have to accept it as fact and we're prone to bend history to fit the Bible. Kind of to put Christ in, or the church in places where Exactly. Sometimes we put the church in places where it's just not talking about it. And we put history in places where the Bible's just not talking about that at all. Then the last view is what? Futurist. What does the futurist believe? Hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened yet that everything has yet to happen. Now, what did we say about every single one of these views? Does every one of them have something good? Yes. Yes. Does every one of them have something bad? 
Yes. Do we want to be out here on the extreme in any one view? No, we really want to try to be in the center. Is there stuff that is allegory? Yes. Is there stuff that has happened in the past that it will talk about? Yes. Is there stuff that is currently happening that it talks about? Yes. Is there stuff that happens that will happen in the future? Yes. So we want to be as close to center as possible. Now we all have a bias one way or another. I grew up in the independent fundamental Baptist church and they are staunchly right here. They are what we would call premillennial tribulationists, meaning that the church is going to be sucked away and that everybody that's left is going to go through seven years, well, three and a half years of pr probably pretty good times and then three and a half years of really bad times. That's what the IFB believes. That's the way I grew up. And, and there's a lot of me that still clings to that. But are we to change Scripture or is Scripture to change us? Scripture is supposed to change us. And unfortunately, the church doesn't hold to that today. The vast majority of it anyway. But there's, there is stuff that in my study of Revelation has challenged me. Because in my view, growing up in the IFB, well, this is literal. This is exactly what this means. But when we let the Bible interpret the Bible, maybe it's not exactly as I have been told my whole life. Maybe somebody has taken a second tier, third tier, fourth tier idea and has made a first tier doctrine or idea out of it. And we're going to encounter those and we'll talk through them. Uh, the only thing that I ask is when we start getting into the churches and we start talking about tribulational views in chapters 2 and 3, that you have scripture to support your point of view. I welcome your view if you're an amillennialist, which means that you don't believe that there's a literal millennium. I welcome your view, but I want you to have scripture to back it up. If you're a premillennialist, meaning that you believe that the, that the apocalypse, well, the the rapture happens prior to the tribulation. Awesome. Have scripture to back it up. That's the one I, I am the most familiar with. If you're a mid-tripper, which there are very few of those around, meaning that you think that the, the rapture happens at the three and a half year mark and the church gets pulled out then so that they don't go through the time of great tribulation, have scripture to prove it. That's all I ask. I want your viewpoints. I want your opinions. And I want you to have scriptural evidence to back it up. So, we just took care of three terms on your vocabulary. What were they? Amillennial. Amillennial. Premillennial. Premillennial. Mid. Mid-tribulation. Mid, mid you got two pages of vocab there. Yeah. Pre-trib and post-trib. Post-trib. Follows more into the amillennial camp. There, there are probably, I think the survey said like one third of one percent of Christians that carry what's called a post-tribulational view. And I'll explain what that is when we actually get into the letters, uh, because it actually falls more into the amillennial camp. Well, I'll go ahead and talk about it now <coughs> while we're talking. About it. Um, is Paul obsessed with athletics? Yes. Oh yeah, Paul, Paul loves the Roman games. He loves discus. 
He loves the foot races. He loves the, the aspect of training. He's a little guy that could never really participate, but he loves sports. And we see analogies in this, in his writings, do we not? <laughs> Those that want run the race, they're all running, but who wins? One person wins the crown. But then there's another type of crown that's given to those that through the process. Well, so-and-so has trained like this. They've got the best training regiment. So we give, it's kind of like the Oprah of laurels. <laughs> you get a laurel and you get a laurel because you trained well and you've done well. Your process was really good. So there are those that get graded on process, but then there are those that get graded on results. And there's different types of races. Wrestling's the same way. And Paul's all about military and in that, in, with <coughs> athletics. And so as he's talking, he's talking about that athletics and running races, but he's also talking about the military when he's referring to the armies of God and he's comparing them to Roman military. Well, what happens with the Roman military is Titus Vespasian goes to Jerusalem, lays the temple flat in 70 AD. He spent two and a half years fighting the, Jer the Jerusalem war lays the temple flat, morale of the Jews is at an all-time low at that point. He conquers the city, disperses Jews across all of the Roman kingdom. He goes back to Rome. He doesn't go into the city the day he comes back to Rome. What he does is he camps outside the gates. What this does is this gives the citizens of Rome time to hang up flowers, to cover up the smell of the urine in the streets and just the, the normal junk of life that's in the streets. And what Roman citizens will do is they will run out and they will run back in with the army. They will run in with all the horses and the chariots in a victor's parade. The post-millennial looks at it as kind of like that. You're going to go up just to come right back down. Um, very few people believe in that now. There's pretty much no scripture to support that other than Paul's other writings that talks about the running of the race and then the armies coming in and come in the, the marches of victory. That's pretty much the only thing that you could use to support that. And so very few people have the post-millennial view. Um, so, but we've taken care of four of those now. All right. And we'll, we'll come back to some of the other vocabulary as we get to it. And we'll hit dispensations and dispensationalism and all that fun stuff once we get there. Your next page, Nebuchadnezzar statue. Let's go ahead and fill that in. What's the head made of? Gold. Gold. Who or what does it represent? Nebuchadnezzar. It represents Nebuchadnezzar. What's unique about this? It's the only one that's not a king in the record, or represents him specifically. It's the only one that represents an individual. Does it represent his kingdom? It just represents him. Give you a moment to fill that out. All right, then we get into the chest and arms. What are they made of? Silver. Silver. Who does this represent? The Medo-Persian Empire. Does Daniel tell us a lot about them? <laughs> nope. There's one sentence dedicated to them in this whole vision. <laughs> Daniel was a great politician even early in life. Don't tell the king somebody's coming to get him. Then we get to the belly and thighs. What are they made of? Bronze. They're made of bronze. Who does this represent? <coughs> Greece. Greece makes chariots of bronze and brass. 
They've got shields of bronze and brass so that they gleam in the sun and they shine. Then we get to the legs. What are the legs made out of? Iron. Now what's so significant about this? There's two. And what does that mean for the kingdom? It splits. Same thing with the arms. Remember, we've got the Medes and we've got the Persians. They're in locked together. Well, the Roman, the Roman kingdom, it splits into two separate entities. We've got the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. Where is the Eastern Roman Empire ruled from? Istanbul. It's Constantinople. Istanbul. From Constantinople. Come on. Taco's awesome. Nobody knows what. <laughs> Nobody knows but the Turks. <laughs> Come on with it. It's ruled from Constantinople, and it lasts in parts up until the early 1700s. The vast majority of it caves in in the 1400s, but there are still pockets that consider themselves to be the Eastern Roman Empire all the way up to about 1730-1740. All right. Where's the Western Roman Empire ruled from? Rome. Rome from the Vatican we'll actually be talking about that later on too and then from there we go down to the feet what are the feet made of iron and clay let's just go ahead and say iron and porcelain porcelain while it is very multifaceted and great for using for different things what's the drawback to it it's fragile. It's like a pie crust. Easily made, easily broken. And then the last characteristic of the statue, what do we have? We've got the rock. Tell me about the rock. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Sunday school answer. It's got to be Jesus. Bay and Andy, it's, it's cut out without human hands. So we do know that it is Christ. Now, we, for those of you that were with us for the book of Daniel, when we covered this, do you remember what was so significant about it being a rock cut out without human hands? It's undefiled. It's undefiled? What's significant to it to Nebuchadnezzar? He's an architect. He's an architect. He's an engineer. He, he is a stonemason. He understands what it takes to chisel a rock, to have a square rock, and to be able to get this cut out, and for it to be cut out without human hands. But there's something else that's significant about it. Do you remember what? In his religion. Who's his God? Marduk. Marduk. What is Marduk called? His, 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 it's called the Shadu Rabu. Sounds like Sinatra named this guy. But Marduk is called the Shadu Rabu, or Great Mountain. Those of you that were here for Daniel, come on, y'all even crack jokes out on me for it. Bill's like, yep, I remember now. <laughs> but he's called the Shadu Rabu, or the Great Mountain. Now what's said of the rock? It hits the statue, obliterating the statue, turning it to the dust as the chaff of the wind. And then what happens to that rock? It grows into a mountain that does what? It fills the entire earth. Marduk was considered a mountain that just took up in the northern parts. But now you've got a mountain 
that grows from a rock cut out without human hands that grows to fill the entire earth. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes note of this. Well, then what's greater than Marduk? Whoever this rock is. Whoever's going to shatter the world system is greater than my God. And so, this, I mean, this is very humbling to Nebuchadnezzar. And we even see that because of how he treats Daniel. What does he do for Daniel after that? Elevates him to a chief advisor, and he's governor over what? Over the city of Babylon. Now later he'll get a promotion and he'll be over, over all of Babylonia, which basically makes him prime minister. He's second in charge, which sets up for Nebuchadnezzar to go eat salad for about seven years and for Daniel to be able to take care of him. All right? Yes, ma'am. The feet is the final kingdom. The final kingdom. Now we've got, we've got to look at this, and there are some great postulations here. What do you think the final kingdom is? We. Hmm? You think it's America? It might be America. Government of the people by the people, so it's a little bit of both. Government of the people by the people. I wish John were here so we could have this discussion. <laughs> but since he's not, I'm going to take full advantage. What does, what does the book of Daniel say about this? As, as iron does not mix with clay, what happens? It says that the iron is mingled with clay so that the sons of God did what? Mingled their seed with men. Now, how do we interpret Genesis 6 determines how we interpret this passage. I'm going to tell you as somebody who has studied this extensively, when you see the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament, who does it exclusively refer to? Angelic or spiritual beings. Not all spiritual beings are angels, but it refers to spiritual beings, those that were the sons of God. Genesis 6 said the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. John holds to the Sethite view. Basically, all the daughters of Seth had great personalities, and so Seth's sons went and found wives among all the Canaanite women. And that's the Sethite view. Now, you can hold that, but you are doing some serious theological gymnastics to get there. I'm just telling you. This, this is one of those where we take the scripture and we have to bend it and we have to twist it and we're trying to make the scripture fit us, not us fit the scripture. Then we see in Job, in Job 38. Oh, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And the sons of God sang for joy. Were there a bunch of Jews? Were Seth's kids hanging out when God laid the foundation stone for the earth? Don't think so. In 1 Kings, I think. God's talking to the sons of God. Now, is that a bunch of old Jews guys that come up to heaven and they're sitting there hanging out with God, chit-chatting about Ahab? No, they're spiritual beings. Every time we see sons of God in the Old Testament, it's referring to spiritual beings. That makes that significant for the New Testament. Why? When we see sons of God in the New Testament, who does it refer to? 
the, the, the saints. To them he gave the right to be called what? Sons of God. It's all about God reconciling his family. So how we interpret Genesis 6. Now you can hold the Sethite view. And John's the only one I'm going to dog about it because it gets his blood pressure up and it's just fun. But you can hold the Sethite view. But for every other understanding of sons of God, you've got a lot of work. For me, it's one of those just let the text say what the text says. Accept what the text says. Don't try to read into it more than what it says. So for me, it's an understanding that there are spiritual beings that are trying to mingle with the kingdom of men, that they're trying to mingle their seed with the kingdom of men, and do they hold together well? No, they do not. <laughs> Jesus, his exorcistic ministry, is all about the Gentiles. When he goes to the land of Gergesa and he goes into the graveyard and there's the guy that says, I've got legion for we are many. Gergesa is not a Jewish territory. It's Gentile. But what do the demons, the legion, what does he say to Christ when he sees him? Son of God. <laughs> so Christ, Jesus Christ, son of the most high, have you come to torment us? Now what does Jesus say? Hush your mouth. But what's Jesus doing in Gentile territory? He's exercising his authority. There's a Syrophoenician woman that comes to Jesus. Now, th this is one of my favorite stories. And she has a child that's possessed and is sick and is dying. And she is begging for Jesus to exercise this child. And it called, and it, I mean, it's very specific when it says a Syrophoenician woman. And that should make our ears stick up. Why? Hmm? She's a Gentile. She's what? She's a Gentile. But more specifically, let's go back to the Old Testament. Somebody else married a Syrophoenician chick. What's her name? She sacrifices children. She wanted to kill Elijah, but Elijah showed her. Jezebel. Jezebel's a Syrophoenician. And what they do is they revel in child sacrifice. They have their first child just to sacrifice that child. They are worshipers of Molech, who is a Baal. When we read Baal, when we read Baal in the New Testament, Baal is not a specific name. It's a general term. It's a term that means Lord or Master or the guy that's in charge. And there's tons of Baals. It's B-A apostrophe A-L. So when we see these Baals, it could be Molech. It could be Marduk. Uh, in Elijah's case, it's actually um, Hercules that he goes up against. The temple that's there is a temple to Hercules. And so she's a, Jezebel's all about killing children. She's all about the child sacrifice. She's all about temple prostitution. We don't care about the kids as long as the adults are getting what they're doing. But then the Syrophoenician woman, the Gentile, from a, from a place that adores child sacrifice, she comes to Jesus begging for what? Healing for, Healing for her child. And what does Jesus do? He, he, he's going back and forth with her. What does he tell her? 
It is not good to take the bread for the children and give it to the dogs. Yeah, but what does she say back? Even the crumbs from the table feed the dogs. Now, was Jesus going to heal this child? Yes. But what's Jesus doing? <laughs> there are Pharisees and Sadducees that have followed him. And he's exercising his authority in Gentile nations. He's showing that he is real. He doesn't even have to see the child, does he? He says, daughter, go your way because your faith has healed your child. There is a demon that has been cast out and that child has been restored. We see Jesus exercising this authority in Gentilic areas. <clears throat> and so we're, we're, we, we've got this mingling, but we've got possession that is easily destroyed by the Holy God. And so when Jesus strikes at that clay mingled with iron, they don't stick together. Now tonight we'll begin some of the postulations. How might this occur in our modern society? If you watch the news at all, how would demonic possession begin to rule in our modern society if that's what the kingdom is? Strike at the economy. What? Strike at the economy. Strike at the economy? Okay. It would be appealing to people who are lost. It would be appealing to people who are lost. Mm. Do we see anything like that today? Like what? Like the... <laughs> Bill says everything. <laughs> I think one that affects me is like the gay community. Yeah. The gay community? We've got the buying, buying and selling of humans. You've got the buying and selling of children? Child trafficking, Andy said? What was that? It would get to be really hard to tell truth from lies. Hard to tell truth from lies. All of a sudden, there's a lot of foggy gray in the middle. It's all relative. It's all relative. Mm. There are no definites. There are no absolutes, including this statement. If it makes you feel good, do it. Hmm. There's a guy by the name of Aleister Crowley from the 60s who was the head of the Church of the Satan. And I think the second commandment was, do what thou wilt. That's 60 years ago. That's before I was even thought of. And there's Barbara's over there laughing like, man, it seems like yesterday to me. <laughs> <laughs> In 63, I had this little Corvette, and I would do that. <laughs> but it didn't start with Aleister Crowley. There's a book called The Morning of the Magicians. It speaks of the satanic influence over Hitler. And Charles Goebbels, who was in charge of Hitler's SS and the satanic rituals that they frequently participated in. But it doesn't start with him. Where does it start? It starts with Adam and Eve and that old snake in the garden. Remember, in Genesis, how many trees are there that we're worried about? Two. We're worried about two trees. We want to eat from one. We want to not touch the other. What does, what does the one we eat from, what's it called? The tree of life. Who planted it? God. Why does he want us to eat of the tree of life? To be with him. It's an acceptance of God's sustaining power in our lives. But the other tree, who planted it? God planted it. God planted it. Why would God plant it? So that we would choose 
free will, the tree of life. God put it there. But then what happens? <laughs> we chose poorly, <laughs> as Indiana as, as the night in Indiana Jones. Got to make good choices. God gives us that free will. And what we see for the next 6,000 years of human history is us struggling in that choice. And us constantly making the wrong choice. Well, 4,000 years into that, what happens? Christ comes. Christ comes. And he dies for what? For our bad choices. For our bad choices. So that when we make that wrong choice, we have an avenue of forgiveness. Now that avenue of forgiveness covers the 4,000 years prior to. For those that understood when God said, I will make a way. All right, God, we're waiting on you to get here with the ticket. We've got Christ who shows up with the ticket. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of knowing that Christ has come. And Christ has died. And this is what we're going to see throughout Revelation. We're going to see a going back to what God had initially created. In Isaiah 5, can anybody tell me the parable from Isaiah 5? There was a certain rich man who bought the choicest piece of land. He got in and he worked it. He pulled the rocks out of it. He built a wall around this area. And what he did is he took the choicest vine. And in that garden, he planted that choice vine. He watered it. He dug around it. He even dug a wine vat so that he could smash the grapes and pour out sweet wine. But instead of getting sweet wine, what's he get? Sour grapes, sour berries. Now, Jesus picks that up in Matthew. Now, how does Jesus adjust it? He says, a certain man had a vineyard, and what's he do? He rents it, it out. Who does he rent it out to? Vine, vine dressers. And what does he do then? He, he goes away on a journey. But then what happens in a couple seasons? It's time to collect either a portion of the produce or a portion of some cash. Sends the servants. What happens? They beat them up, send them away, send some more servants. What happens? Beat them up. Beat them up so bad that they basically strip them and throw them out of the garden so that not only are they beaten and bruised, but they are shamed. Send some more servants. What do they do? They kill them. Then what does the master of the vineyard say? He sends his son. He says, I will send my son. Surely they will respect my son. Now, what we've got is we've got the great man or the wealthy man or the master who has planted a vineyard. He has created a world. And in that world, he chose to put a certain type of person, a certain creature. He chose to put man. That is his choices because it, man was created to be the pinnacle of creation on earth. And so it's the choicest vine. He puts them in a vineyard. Well, somebody comes in and they ruin the vineyard, do they not? Satan. And so now, when we get into Revelation, we're going to see a wine press. We're going to see a harvest time thrust in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. As we get into Revelation, we're going to go backwards in Genesis. We're going to see 
what was in the beginning laid out in the end. I'm going to post a video tonight. Uh, it's about two and a half hours long. It's on YouTube. If you get a chance, watch it. I'm not espousing the view completely, but they make a good biblical case for their view for the seven days of creation. If you take Isaiah 46.10, does anybody know what that says? Have not I declared what? The end from the beginning. And I mean, and it's, it's a great case for laying out a calendar, which is another one of our words. What's a calendar? It's a system for what? For marking time, days, months, weeks, years. Um, normally calendars and timelines are interchangeable. Uh, for our purposes, we're not going to let them be interchangeable. A calendar is a set system that repeats. A timeline is one system that just goes from one point to another point. So I'm, we're not going to let them be interchangeable. So when I talk about calendars, we're talking about a cycle that repeats. When we're talking about timelines, we're talking about a definite amount of time from one period. Now, we may not know what that definite time is. God does. But in our little three and a half dimensions, we travel one way down that time road. We've yet to figure out how to back her up. Kind of like some people when they put a trailer on their truck or car. Oh, I can't do this. So we hadn't figured out how to do that yet. So, so a calendar is going to be a what? A cycle, that a cycle that repeats and a timeline is going to be what? Definite. A definite amount of time. All right. And what is the statue that we're given in Daniel? What would we consider it? A calendar or a timeline? It's a timeline. What God's laying out the rest of the Gentile, the, the age of the Gentiles, from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to Antichrist, and then Christ coming in and reestablishing social Israel, not political Israel, but social Israel. Questions, thoughts, comments so far? I know I've kind of moved fairly quickly. But once, one twice. All right, there are some of you that already have it. Well, all of you have it now, but there's another paper in your packet. It's the Feasts and Festivals. What's the, fir what's the first thing that we see on here? In Nisan, what do we see? Passover. We see Passover. You've got a page in your packet that's right behind this that we're going to look at. And I want somebody to go ahead and grab Matthew 24 while we're here. But we said the first thing we encounter is what? Passover. Now tell me about Passover right quick. Celebration of freedom from slavery. Celebration of freedom from slavery. What happens? Got to put blood on the door, lentils on the doorpost. Starts with selecting the lamb. Starts with selecting a lamb. Where does that happen? The tenth day. Tenth day. Tenth day. What day is Passover? Fourteen. Fourteen. Got 14. So 
When do we begin our year? What, what, is, what happens in the sky to begin the year? New moon. So on Passover, what phase is the moon in? Full. It's a full moon. So we know that the since we've got a full moon, what is the three hours of darkness not? It's not an eclipse. If we've got a full moon, those that would say, well, those three hours of darkness, that was just an eclipse. Well, isn't the full moon, the moon's supposed to, it, it, the true new moon, it's between the earth and the sun at that point, somewhere on the earth. Okay, well then that would put the three hours of darkness 14 days before Christ dies on Passover. If it's an eclipse. What I'm saying is... I didn't is, say it was an eclipse. I just say that's I, what I know. the new moon is. The, the new moon is in the daytime sky. Which means the full moon is not, and it's where? In the nighttime sky, right? So that means it's on what side of the earth from the sun? Same side. No, the opposite side for the full moon. You got the sun over here shining down, and if I'm seeing the full moon, where is it? It's over here. So we got sun, earth, moon. Got our sunshine. We got light coming out, 93 million miles. We've got the Earth. Now, if it's a new moon, moon's right there, or somewhere here. Will we agree to that? I thought it was directly between the Earth and the Sun, somewhere on our planet. It, it can be, and it, it can cause a lunar or a solar eclipse, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be, it depends on the time of year as to where it sits for the new moon as to if it causes an eclipse or not. Because we don't have solar eclipses every day. We have partial eclipses, but we don't necessarily have full eclipses. So it doesn't have to be exactly right there. Okay? <clears throat> but when we have a full moon, it's from there to there. So on the 14th day of the month, this is where we are. First day of the month, this is where we are. So, is there going to be a solar eclipse in the middle of the day when the moon's on the opposite side of the earth from the sun? No. no. So, for those critics that would say, well, it's just an eclipse, no, because the month begins on the new moon. So, we know that there's a full moon that night. So, anyway, we've got Passover that happens on the 14th. Prior to that, it begins with lamb selection on the 10th. Ten days before that, we started the month of Nisan with the new moon. Now, immediately after Passover, what begins? Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this can be from six to eight days, depending on what the cycle is, where we are on the weeks, because it actually goes by the Shabbat, or the Sabbath day, versus what the day of the week is. So we've got Unleavened Bread. Eight. Then after that, what comes next? You got first fruits. Now what do we do with first fruits? What do we bring? Harvest. We bring the harvest. Which harvest? Wheat. Almost. Barley. Barley. Barley harvest. 
Now, what's so significant about the barley harvest? What have you not had for six months in your grain stores? Fresh grain. And you've got before you can eat anything on the day of first fruits, your sheaf that you bring to the temple has to be accepted by the priest and given as a burnt wave offering to God before your family can eat and partake of any of the rest of the harvest. So, we've got first fruits. Then after first fruits, what comes next? Fifty days after first fruits, what happens? Pentecost. Pentecost. We've got Pentecost, we've got 50 days here. Now, what happens, what, what, what would happen at Pentecost for the Jews? Is that the same as the Feast of Weeks? That would be where you bring your wheat offering. That, that would be a harvest. No, I was not the Feast of Weeks. It's the Feast of Weeks, why? Wheat, not weeks. No, weeks, it's called the Feast of Weeks. It's seven weeks. So you've got a section of the Shemitah cycle here. Okay? So it's, it'll be a festival of weeks, but what, what, what do you do at Pentecost? It's mandatory that you be in town. So if you're in town, you have to give some kind of offering. What are you giving? Hmm? Is that the wheat? You would give wheat. You would give bread specifically. We're going to offer up two loaves of bread. The high priest offers up two loaves of bread, specifically leavened bread, which is kind of funny because what have we just done eight weeks earlier? Unleavened bread. The what? everything Well, I talked to Aaron about getting the, the magnets taken off the door so we can stop sucking the information out. We got Pentecost at Adam. You're going to bring a loaf of leavened bread and a loaf of unleavened bread, and then you're going to have another loaf of leavened bread that you present as an offering. And that's significant. All right, now let's take these and let's apply them to Scripture. What is Passover? Who dies on Passover? Christ. Christ. On the tenth day of the month, what happens? Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've got Palm Sunday. And so from there to Passover, we've got the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, and the 14th. And on Passover, Jesus dies at what time? About 3 o'clock, which is what? The hour of the evening sacrifice. So he is, is because in just a couple hours, it's going to be twilight, and then they're going to blow the shofar, and it's going to be... The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay? So we've got Christ who dies. <coughs> well, on the Festival of First Fruits, which falls somewhere in here, what, what, what do we have rising? Because it can be as short as two days, depending on the calendar from Passover. Who rises on the third day? Jesus, Jesus Christ. And he's called the what? He's called the Prototokos. Prototokos mean? We have a word very similar in the English language. Proto, prototype. He's the first among many. So we've got Jesus that rises. And then what happens at Pentecost? 
He leaves again. Where does he go? He ascends to heaven. How? In a cloud. And that's a fulfillment of prophecy from where? More specific. We talked about somebody in the clouds. Come on, we spent two, two years in the book of Daniel. Jesus' favorite name for himself with the Pharisees. What's he called himself? Son of Man. What does he tell the Pharisees? Surely you shall not see me again until you see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And the angels tell the disciples what? You're going to see him come back how? You're going to see him come back the exact same way you saw him leave. Jesus steps in a cloud, presses top floor, and whoop, up he goes. All of these have been fulfilled. All right, but then what do we have? What's the next thing on the timeline I gave you? You've got the summer harvest. All right, how long does it last? Three months? More like four months. About 135, 140 days. And that's dependent on the very next thing. What's the very next thing? The Feast of Trumpets. Now, do y'all remember what the Feast of Trumpets, how, how that goes down? For those of you that were here five years ago when we did. Have to be in Jerusalem. They're looking for the new moon. And they can't have just one witness. They've got to have two witnesses. Hmm. Are we going to see that anywhere? Oh, and after the two witnesses are called up and they have given their report, what happens? The first blowing of the trumpet. You've got to have two guys, two Kohanim, two priests. They don't have to be the high priest, but you've got two priests who can verify that they saw the new moon for the festival of trumpets to start. And it starts at night. And so what would happen is these two guys would go to the temple. They would give their report. Yes, we saw it or we haven't seen it yet. And if it's cloudy... <laughs> Lord help us. But you've got two guys, that, you've got two witnesses that have to see it. And so they give their report. And if they, we, we have seen it, what they then do is the beginning of the blowing of trumpets begins. And over two days, they will blow the trumpets a hundred times. But to let everybody know is at the temple, they would light these enormous torches. And then from there, this mountaintop would light up. This mountaintop would light up, and slowly you see all the mountaintops lighting up so that they're spreading the word that it's time for the Festival of Trumpets. Has this happened with the church? No. So where are we? We're in the summer harvest. We're in the ankles on the statue. We're in the summer harvest. So with the Feast of the Festivals, what do we have? Do we have a calendar or a timeline? We have a timeline. God gives us several of these throughout. Now, from trumpets, what's the next day? Day of Atonement. 
Tell me about the Day of Atonement. You've got ten days in there. You've got the scapegoat and the, the sacrificial goat. And now, that's the, the one time that the high priest enters the Holy of Holies? That's the one day that the high priest enters the Holy of Holies. How many times does he go in? Once a year. He goes in twice. One day a year. He gets up that morning. And while the other priests are casting lots on the goat, he takes a bull. He sacrifices the bull. He takes the bronze laver and he fills it with the bull's blood. And he comes up to the Holy of Holies and he's about to walk a path called the way. And he knows how many steps it is in. The room's 20 by 20 by 20. So that's gonna put the other end of the room about where Alex Roth is. And what's going to be close to that back wall? The Ark of the Covenant. So he's going to take this, this bronze ladder, and he's going to step through the curtain. Now he's got a white cord and he's got a gold cord tied to his ankle. He's got bells on this ankle. On this ear, what does he have? Blood of the bull. On this thumbnail, what does he have? Blood of the bull. On this big toenail, what does he have? Blood of the bull. I need covering for what I think, what I do, and where I go. And blindly, he's walking by faith and not by sight. And he's going to know how many paces it is. And he's going to get back here to the Ark of the Covenant. And while holding the bronze ladder, he's going to take his fingers, he's going to put them in the blood, and he's going to sprinkle them on the mercy seat. He will then turn around, and he will then walk out. When he comes back out, now he goes to the gates of the temple or the gates of the tabernacle, whichever one we're talking about. And there are two goats and they have cast lots. We said one was what? Scapegoat. What happens to it? The high priest takes his hand. Imparts a symbol onto it. For those of you that think this is Star Trek, this is actually a Jewish blessing hand from Orthodox Jewish priests. He would lay his hand on the goat and he would impart sins of Israel onto that goat. Then what's going to happen to that goat? It's going to be sent to the wilderness or sent for Azazel out into the wilderness. Now, where are they taking this goat? How long are they taking this goat? Going to take it a three day journey. Which direction? North, south, east, or west? West. West. They're going to take it west. Now remember the temple's facing this way, which is what? East. east. And they're going to take the goat that way. And so we have David talking about this, does he not? Says that he has put our sins as far as the east is from the west. <laughs> now, I'm going to get a little technical on you, so bear with me for a moment. What's this sign? It's the infinity sign. Is our God infinite? Yes. Yes. So does he know where the train tracks cross at the edge of infinity? Yes. So to say that he put our sins as far as the east is from the west doesn't say that he put them an infinite distance apart because God knows where infinity is. 
He put them as far as the east is from the west is a Jewish way of saying he sent them to a place of unknowing. Now, if God sends our sins to a place of unknowing, can God remember them at that point? No, because he sent them to a place of unknowing. If it's a place of unknowing, nobody's going to know. It's a, it's a way of saying that God is offering forgiveness. So that when we see this, the east is from the west. But anyway, they take the goat out three days out, to, out west. And they leave the goat there and they come back. And so we've got them. Well, what happens to the other goat? High priest then, again, takes his hand, lays it on the goat's head, imparts the sins of Israel, and prays to God that he accepts the goat's blood for all the sins of Israel. Now, why did the priest sacrifice a bull for himself that morning, but only a goat for the whole nation? Because of the sacrificial system. Because of the sacrificial system. Why? Because the high priest is more important. His sin is much more far-reaching than Joe Blow out on the street. Joe's sin, it affects maybe a few folks around him. If he's a little higher up, okay, it may affect a few more. But the high priest is the ruler of the nation. And so his sin is much more far-reaching. So he has to have a greater sacrifice according to God's system. And so, but anyway, for the nation, he imparts the sins. And what do they do to the goat? The high priest then takes the other bronze ladder, fills it with the goat's blood. He's standing at this door again. Frank, the smoke from the frankincense is pouring out. His eyes are stinging. Walks his steps in, fingers in the blood, sprinkles him on the east side of the mercy seat, turns around and walks out. This is the Day of Atonement. This 10-day period. Now, we've encountered 10 before, have we not? Where do we encounter ten in the Bible? Ten commandments, ten toes. When we saw ten, what did we talk about? What did we say the ten as a whole meant? Governments. Governments by who? By God. The five and five, like the toes on Daniel's statue, is government by who? By man. So when we see the whole ten, like we have the Decalogue, we see the government by God. What time is it? My phone died on me. Oh, my stars. I'm thinking it's like 620 in here. <laughs> it's 620 somewhere. It's 620 somewhere. So, uh, we'll, we'll pick it up here next week. I'm sorry. That's just off my stars. I apologize. I... It's somewhere in that <laughs> Somebody pray for us and let's dismiss. but we got to get some groundwork laid first. Uh, don't feel bad. One of my favorite commentaries has 177 pages of introduction before he ever gets to Revelation. So. Is that all? No. I'm hoping next week we get out of this and we actually hit the text. It depends on if it flies as fast as it did this week. My word. 
flies when you're doing time. Woo! <laughs> yes, fun flies when you're doing time. <laughs> you want a color on my board? Can I move it over here? All right, thank you.